Hi, I'm Liam Ford, founder and CEO of The Zone, and welcome to The Zone Way Podcast. The Zone Way Podcast is a deep dive with my guests into leadership and organizations. It reflects our work together over the last 25 years in more than 35 countries. My guests bring the richness and authenticity of lived experience that ripples beyond textbooks into our everyday lives, illuminating the challenges, the celebrations, successes and failures we will all face. The Zone Way is a philosophy, a methodology and a set of tools to create enlightened leaders and enlightened organizations. Welcome and enjoy. Today's guest is Nick Paul. Now, Nick and I started working back in 1995, and I recently met Nick again when I returned to New Zealand at a leaders conference. And it was just so great to see him again and catch up on the history. So Nick has some really interesting experiences and he talks about this thing called the tyranny of drift. And I think you might find it pretty interesting. He also has one of those no asshole rules. So listen in and enjoy. Hey, Nick, uh, welcome to the Zone Way podcast and uh, really pleased you can be on the call. Thanks, Liam. It's great to be here. Pleasure. Yeah. You know, I hate to say this, but I think we met first in like 1995, which is 26 years ago, and um, which just tells you how much water's gone under the bridge since then and, you know, why you're an expert at what you do and why I'm an expert at what I do because we, we have yeah. been on the, <laughs> we've been on that road for a long time and yeah. reinvented the wheel probably four times, right? Uh, a while ago. Yeah, yeah. So I met you at Bell South, and then, of course, Bell South had a bit of a dream team. Then you were purchased by Vodafone. I think you jumped ship to Extra back there, Then you know, which was the internet provider thing really early days. So you were right in, right in early into that technology. That was pretty crazy. Right. And then, you know, Telecom and then telecom mobile and you sort of went head to head with Vodafone then <laughs> so you were like <laughs> you were like hey you know and um and I think we met again about 2005 when Kevin Kenry was around right that's right yeah yeah and um, boy you've had a lot of experience but and then we've we sort of lost touch because I've been on the road and you've been here and stuff like that and we sort of met again at, at the the New Zealand Connectors crowd and we're like hey Nick hey Liam yeah. right which is pretty cool so just give us the potter's history. So from that Spark Telecom days, when you were looking after all those sales channels, which was crazy, to mm. the quick where you are now at the sales factory, which is helping other people, you know, be brilliant. Great. Thank you. So, yes, it's uh, been quite a journey. Um, some unexpected twists and turns along the way. <laughs> never a straight but line, right? <laughs> never, never a straight line, of course. But, um, yeah, when we... Uh, when I was at Spark, the, uh, it was quite interesting. I was at the extra internet business for some time, as you mentioned. And uh, at the time, I think the, the culture within site Telecom, uh, at the time was being run by Teresa, was one that they probably they saw, they looked over the fence at the extra culture and saw it as the, you know, the, the cheeky young upstart wearing jeans and black T-shirts and thought, oh, we want a bit of that. And so they, uh, they they basically absorbed extra back into the uh, into the mothership, and mm. took a lot of us into various roles, including Kevin and Rod Snodgrass and myself and various others that have now gone on to be, have have some 
pretty serious careers. I ended up after a year or so in Kevin's team, Kevin Kendrick's team, at a time where they wanted to resurrect the fortunes of the of the telecom mobile performance that was getting its backside you know, handed to it the plate by Vodafone, which was kind of ironic. So I uh, sorry about that because I was the, I was the author of the Vodafone <laughs> culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that, mate. Pretty interesting culture back then. So the um, I think uh, they were identifying that they had a you know a pretty poor technology platform, the old TDMA network. The culture was pretty ordinary, and the market share was just you know going south at a pretty rapid rate of knots. So uh, Kevin assembled a team to resurrect that fortune with a you know, pretty hefty war chest from uh, from from the board, and we invested in effectively putting lipstick on a pig with uh, some some kind of you know, upgrade technology that made TDMA look a little better. But more importantly, we had a, a better range of handsets. We invested in uh, some decent marketing, and my role was to go and resurrect the sales channels, which mm. included um, fixing our own franchise group. We had the retail stores that we effectively locked out of from the, the great job that Vodafone done exclusively tying those, uh, those retailers up as exclusive retailers. And we set about trying to fix that. So um, after a year and a bit, we managed to stop the rot. And uh, <laughs> so our measurement of success was, uh, you know, how much, uh, how much market share we, was, we had stopped losing. But I think we sort of bottomed oh, out God. at about 39% of the market or something like that. What more importantly, it set the platform for the next iteration of technology which was many, many of your listeners will understand, will probably be aware of, it's the XT platform, which despite its okay. uh, you know, early blips in uh, outages, went on to become what, what is now a very successful platform for Spark right. and has resurrected its fortunes in no uncertain terms. It's probably the most dominant player in the market now. So uh, during that hey, time... I- a quick question, though. So Teresa wanted to bring in the upstart extra guys, the G, the cool, cool culture with the T-shirts and, yeah. you know, like blah, 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 and let's have a beer and let's not take ourselves too seriously and let's do some wild, tricky things and go wild and, like, you know, throw the yeah. market. And so she wanted to bring that culture into telecom, and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah. I know what the answer is, but <laughs> yeah. was, well, I- was that <laughs> successful? <laughs> I'll give you an anecdote, but I I always used to love this chart. Sorry, it was a frame certificate on the wall that said, we, the undersigned, from here on in, will be a values-based organization. And it was signed by all the GMs. There's about 100 GMs in the business. And that was framed sitting in the boardroom. (laughs) You know, on your website, you talk about, um, you know, poster values. That was a classic example, right? And it didn't really change for some time. It has now, thankfully. I've been part of yeah. that on a couple of ones, but it's uh, but that was kind of the culture we entered, and they were playing a rearguard action. Lipstick on a pig for the culture, yeah, too. Absolutely. <laughs> but we, um, so the channels I was involved that sort of managed were, I think at the time it was the largest sales organization in the country. We had uh, retail mm. stores, we you know, we had a mass market retailers, we had franchisees and dealers, we had uh, call centers. I wasn't in charge of the call center team, but they were. They were our lar- one of our largest sales agents, you know, across the country. So I think it was about 1,200 staff and, I don't know, close to a billion sales revenue or something. So it was a pretty hefty responsibility, uh, but one I, mm. I absolutely loved and enjoyed and learned a significant amount from, particularly when it came to understanding how each sales channel performs and how you empower right. a sales channel in order to be successful. 
great example of that would be, you know, for a dealer who earns a reasonable amount of income, you know, you need to put in, put in place an incentive that drives them to get an overseas trip to Tahiti. For a call centre agent, you put a Mars bar up and say the winner of the of a competition gets a Mars bar. And they'll both fight tooth and nail, tooth and nail to get there, right? But, the, yeah, but it's, <laughs> a, it's the difference in, um, in mentality about how, what makes a channel tick that I really learned right. from, the, from, that, from that experience. Yeah. Is it sort of carrot and stick or is it more carrot that motivates the sales channels? It's an interesting question. I think, you know, if you're looking at it from a reseller side, you'd say the carrot. But if you're looking at it from the supplier mm. or the vendor side, you'd, you'd want the stick there in order to make sure that if the carrot doesn't work, you've got a backstop. <laughs> right? so, which, is, right. which is why the contracts right. are generally the size of an old telephone book. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, no, we think you're going to be successful, but if you're not, we, ha- we own yeah, you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, and, okay. And, and over time, right. they became more and more prescriptive. But, um, you know, uh, right. and during 2010, I was invited to go and run what was uh, was Spark's largest reseller uh, mm. in the country, a company called Leading Edge, which is an Australian-owned business that I pr- bought into the business about five years prior. And I was invited to go and uh, join them as their chief exec. And uh, wow. they, so the, the that shape was a, that of That was a big, that's a big, big jump. Uh, yeah, like I, it was a, I was kind of felt I was ready for it. It was a, it was a great opportunity. I'd like, I liked the business. I liked the people. I knew the industry and the, uh, the headhunter. Mm. Kind of said, like you've got a great opportunity to break out of that being being institutionalised and establish yourself as a CEO, you know, in an industry. Which was, and he was right; it was a great opportunity. But little did I realise the headwinds that I'd encounter early on, which were kind of, you know, the character character building, as they say. So within three months of taking up the reins of the business, uh, and the the shape of the business back then was a uh, we had a number of stores from you know effectively Fonterey down to McCargan. And each of those stores used to run a relationship with, uh, you know, we would serve a teenager buying their first prepaid phone all the way through to servicing a corporate outfit that's looking, you know, Fonterra looking to out-equip their new team with a, with a mobile setup. So, uh, right, right. And just to orientate people, sorry, Nick, to jump in, because we've got some global listeners here, right? right? So, yes. Because we've got clients all around the world that listen to this. Yeah. and. I just I forgot to say that we're both in New Zealand, and oh, uh, so the so the names we're talking about might be foreign, but you know the the sales channels, yeah, the way business is done is the same, right? Absolutely. So within three months, I we were instructed to change our sales model from a kind of one size fits all to very specific lines of business based on the size of the, or the customer segmentation. So it was retail stores only a new entity called Business Hubs that was servicing, geographically servicing small to medium business customers and a specific corporate entity that serviced uh, corporate only uh, customers, again, geographically spaced. So the uh, we were invited as an, through an RFP process to determine whether or not we wanted to be uh, a reseller in any of, in one, on one or all of those entities. So I think it's described as a no-ship moment we realized we, we would either, if we weren't successful here, we may not have a business. So we devoted a lot of energy and effort into getting that right. Uh, and we had a successful outcome in as much as we ended up with a, a pretty reasonable uh, footprint of retail stores, the lion's share of the, of the business hubs. And over time, we won all of the corporate business by virtue of, uh, of the successes we were delivering for. Them. So 
I guess fast forward 12 months from that, we had done a great job for our stakeholders, which included Spark, who wanted these things stood up and started to be successful and delivering good outcomes for them and their customers. And we delivered a good outcome for our owners who were the leading edge board based out of Australia. We were showing growth and we, the fact that we sort of engineered our way through these you know, pretty turbulent times. But we'd forgotten one key part of our stakeholder base, which was our cap, which was our staff. So we, uh, and, and what, what gave us, yes, yeah, what gave us the, uh, a clue about that was we were starting to see our, you know, our, our staff churn rates exceed 50% in the retail environment, which wow. is probably not unheard of in that environment, wow. but it was, uh, we, we weren't comfortable with that. And we, so we thought with my colleague Sandy Hall, who was a head of people at the time, that we, we could do better. So we, uh, we took the, took the leap and did a, uh, an engagement survey run by the Conexa, IBM Conexa Best Workplace people. And it was, as we expected, we'd done a, you know, a, an okay job, but we were mediocre. You know, our, our disengagement was pretty low. Was Sorry, it was pretty high. Our sort of middle of the road was, was relative and our highly engaged was low. So, you know, we had some issues to solve uh, and we frankly had better aspirations than just being middle of the road. So we set about fixing it and uh, through a, a defined and deliberate process, listened to our staff, we, we thought about the values and got them to rewrite them and then ensured that they were well understood and we made sure that we didn't put them in a plaque on the wall, that they were embedded in the business. Yeah. And that we also... But I'm going I'm to jump in there because you had a decision to make as a CEO because you've got a business, it's doing successful numbers... Yeah. You know, okay, and we know that staff churn is high in that sort of retail and service environment anyway. Why didn't you just say, oh, well, you know, that's part of the cost. Let's focus on the numbers. What what was it in you yeah. as the CEO yeah. that made the choice to make a spend on people? Because you wouldn't have had to, particularly yeah. in those yeah. days. You, you wouldn't have had yeah. to. So that's what I'm interested in. What is it in you that had you do that? Yeah, two things. One is I don't think you can... I guess you've got to make a choice whether or not you do divorce the outcomes of uh, a strong culture and profit. I personally believe that, and I think as time has proven, and you know, recently that they are inextricably linked. You, you, I don't think that, that you can get, you know, great outcomes and ask your team to go beyond, uh, you know, over above beyond the, the call of duty unless they're highly engaged. You know, and, and look at look at what's happened in New Zealand with lockdown. I guess the rest of the world delivering outcomes for customers whilst you're locked down wherever you are you, you wouldn't get that generally unless you've got a reasonable culture to start with right so our view as a, as a leadership team was we don't think that you can get the, the outcomes we want long-term financial outcomes unless you've got a highly engaged team so i, I don't think you can divorce it and the second reason was from a personal perspective um i, I didn't want to work in an environment that wasn't highly engaged and where, where I didn't know the names of the people and what was, you know, scraping the, the veneer and what made them tick, right. as did my team. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's you, right? So there was the, hey, the commercial decision, which is just yeah. makes sense yeah. to have a good culture. But then you personally were like, no, I have to stand for what I believe yeah. in, which is I want to care about people. I care about people. I don't want them to be working in a crappy environment. Okay, cool. Got and it. the whole thing gathered momentum, Liam. It was, it was really interesting. I mean, we, the, we went back the year after uh, to the same IBM Connects the Best Workplace Award ceremony, and we had, we had increased it, improved our position to an encouraging, 
encouraging position, but we weren't satisfied and we, we doubled down and went harder the next year. And uh, the end result was we were awarded most improved in New Zealand in terms of staff workplace engagement in the medium to large business category and second overall. So it was phenomenal. Wow. That's a hell of a result considering how yeah, many competitors no, out there. And, and you've got a difficult business anyway. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a churning, high churn business yeah. anyway. So that's, that's a double tick. So then what happened? Well, at the same time as doing that, we also realised that relationship with Spark needed to improve. And uh, we, in order for us to you know, maintain the growth and be a key part of their future, we kind of reframed it and said, look, how do we become or remain relevant to them as a reseller? And the only way we do that is if we can deliver their outcomes in a way that's better than they can. So if it's cheaper or more cost-effective, in line with their customer experience, and we can deliver the volume of business they want, as long as we can do those three key things, we would have a future. And, uh, well, generally. <laughs> and I think that proved right. So it allowed us to reframe the way we view, in which we viewed them from, you know, one of a, we're your reseller, you owe us great product, great pricing, great marketing, um, to one of, actually, we're a, you're our biggest customer. So we viewed, started to view them as a customer, which helped reframe the view and how our staff viewed all of the interactions they had with Spark and their teams throughout the country. So I think that helped really fuel uh, the team to get behind working together with Spark as a, as a key reseller and help them improve their, uh, their engagement with both us and them as a, as, a as a partner. So it went from sort of like a supplier, very sort of tactical yep. to a, a true partnership where we're in it together. Yeah, we win, lose, and learn together. To a point, I mean, you know, you'll only ever get as much as you can get from a reseller, I guess. But you know, it, it's yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly allowed us yeah. to sleep sleep better at night, <laughs> and it was successful yeah. in us winning yeah. winning some concessions and extra business. So, mm. okay, cool. So from from then, where did I go? I uh, I got an invite to go and run an early stage digital marketing business that was pretty well funded. I won't mention names here if you're okay with that, to keep the innocent. But <laughs> yes, by and large, I was like, invited to go and run this company. Uh, and it, it was, I, I was aware that the CEO had a reasonably checkered past. I did some due diligence on her and found that um, she was at best a maverick, at worst slightly, slightly, <laughs> slightly worse than that. But it was uh, a really interesting space in a growing industry. I was offered equity of the business and the opportunity to take it through to trade listing or, or listing, sorry, trade sale or listing. And I also realized that it had some pretty heavyweight people sitting behind it as chairman and, and directors. So that convinced me to kind of put aside the, the maverick nature of the CEO. And I jumped on board and took up the reins of trying to grow this thing and get it going. Within about six months, I realized I'd made a terrible decision. The, what clinched it for me was when we tried to move platforms from uh, billing platforms, and the CEO pushed the uh, the business into into doing it earlier than they were ready. The, the consequence was that we were, we ended up double billing, triple billing customers, and the CEO refused to refund those those customers automatically unless they made a personal request. And we had uh, it was it caused carnage. So I realised at that stage that. You know, it, it's just I just couldn't work in an organisation that wasn't prepared to you know stand behind its mistakes. And and what's more, the product just, just simply didn't work 
couldn't do what I said, wouldn't say on the packet, right? So I, I moved on. It was the first time I've walked out of a company, so, actually. I'd, I'd uh, never done that before, I'd, you know, as much as you often want. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you had another decision point, right? Because a, a lot of people that are, that are going to be listening to this, so there'll, there'll be entrepreneurs and stuff like that, and they'll be faced with those decisions, yes. right? Do we, do we chase the status and potentially the money or do we follow mm. sort of like our intuition, like, oh, yeah. And so, I mean, and you made a call and, and it turned out to be the wrong call. And that's a great, you know, mistake. It's a great lesson learned. Yeah. So what did you learn from that? What did I learn? Well, you, you miss 100% of the shots you never take to, to coin a sporting analogy. And so it was, a, was I don't regret the opportunity of, of giving it a go. What I learned from it, probably do better due diligence, <laughs> I guess. But, I, but you do need to trust your gut and your instinct, and there's uh, right. It did, on the face of it, have an opportunity of being a, a game changer. But I did learn a lot mm. from I'm be, I'm just just thinking more entrepreneurially, if you like. And it did right. it, it ignited in me a sort of a passion or a desire I'd had for a long time to run my own thing. So I chose the right. opportunity to, you know, I could have gone back and knocked on the door of recruitment agent or you know, headhunters agency look I need a CEO job or whatever I'll go back and to your point chase the status and the, the, the corporate dollar and the, but I chose to have a, have a go myself and set up a sales factory in the course of doing that I realized that it needed you needed to have a you know pretty well-defined methodology and process that sat behind you rather than sort of rocking up to a company and saying hey let's come and help you mm. help your sales so I, I started to develop a set of IP and tools that I've used subsequently and refined over time. And in order to help me do that, I did a bit of pro bono work on with some clients early on, uh, just to test out the, the tool set really and see if they worked. And uh, and they did, so I realized there was an opportunity there and uh, yeah. that was six years ago and haven't looked back. That's amazing. So so because you know you, you spend a lot of time in the in the mobile and the, that sort of space. And you might think, oh, well, I'm pigeonholed. That's you know all I can sell. But actually, you went deeper and you went, actually, let's dig under the surface and go, what are, what's the absolute core processes that work in any sales environment? Yeah. Yeah. And let me sort of turn that into a way of doing yeah. it so it can work for everyone. It's a sort of a discipline and stuff That's like right. that. So, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. So you took the what's at the heart of the sales process and and winning business and keeping business and yeah. turned it into yeah. some IP, which is which is really cool. Yeah, so I, I took the I guess what I observed and learned from my you know years in the on the job of the tools is that you know selling is a system. You need to have a system that sits behind you, and it's process right. and it's maths. So you kind of start with those principles and you and you you take it from there. And so going to organisations to be able to help identify you know where they're stuck. Really, why why isn't revenue right. why isn't revenue flowing? And I guess a bit like you, you can walk into an organisation now and you can kind of you know you can smell the culture, right? And you can see yeah. intuitively where the issues are, and you know, but you need to backfill that with some facts to be able to then present a, a business case or a case to for change, right? Um, I, I do similar. Yeah. I can walk into an, a sales organisation and generally within a couple of hours identify where the blockages are. And or where, where right. you know, what the uh, what the symptoms of their of their challenges are, and then start to you know, right. frame up that they, I think they need to uh, to improve. So that that uh, that sort of goes across okay. a number of different elements. And, you know. Yeah. So it's like what we do 
we do at the zone like we, we can walk in and we can we can see where the team's not working and we can see where the organization's not working or, or the individual leaders not working yeah. Yeah. so i mean what what you're saying is really if people engage you that's like you're saving them making them all of those hundreds of mistakes that you made over the years the that yeah you know, and and yeah. you've refined and refined and refined so and then i guess also teach them you know because you realized uh, back there sort of leading edge about the whole relationships internal and external mm -hmm. i think that's the message i got you know that you've got to get your relationships right yeah. once you've got those right you can then turn the wheel of the sales process and it's gonna and it's gonna start making butter for you you know it's that's like right. it's it's it can't not it's like it that's how it works yeah. and you're right? juggling multiple stakeholders right and there's any organization there's and it's you know yeah. owners and suppliers and customers uh, but the, the critical one that, as you mentioned, that we sort of left behind but gladly picked up was our staff. And so, you know. Yeah. So is there anything that you've learned doing this? Because you will have had, you know, you've had lots of different companies, lots of different sizes, yeah. lots of different industries. Now, after after six years, you're, you're um, you know, you're no longer a startup. Yeah. You're like a, you're a wise business. And one thing you mentioned to me was this rule you've got when you work with <laughs> with anyone yeah. and that I was pretty interested yeah, yeah, in that yeah. rule and uh, <laughs> I don't want to take but what what was what was that rule yeah well I, I, I call it <laughs> I call it the no arsehole rule Liam and it's um you know time's too short to suffer idiots right and actually yeah, you can right, suffer idiots yeah. but you can't suffer I, I find it difficult to suffer arseholes <laughs> right and I uh, <laughs> right. And, and I I have used or sort of invoked the the no arsehole rule a couple of times in my career, uh, in, right. in this in this yeah. role, where people have sort of crossed the line of either testing my integrity or, you know, right. seeing poor values played out in front of your eyes to the point yeah. where you go, well, actually, I I just don't want to be part of this environment. And one was yeah. a uh, a piece of work I did for a a business that was headed up by a um, high profile name in the real estate industry. And they were an investor in this business of a, that was a product selling back into that industry. And uh, I woke up one morning to an email where he, this, uh, the, the director had questioned my integrity. That was completely, <laughs> completely unfounded. And I just chose the opportunity to, to sack a client, which was the first one I sacked, but felt great for it. And uh, immediately, got phone, <laughs> immediately got phone calls from fellow directors supporting my decisions and saying, you know, right choice. So uh, that's, that's, I think that's yeah. the rule you're referring to, is it? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And the other one yeah. that we, we, we talked about, mm -hmm. so I think everyone needs the no asshole rule, right? I mean, you need to have your boundaries. I mean, whether it's at work or in personal relationships, yeah. you know, having, having that bottom line, you, you just got to have it, right? And the other one you talked to me about was something you learned from, you know, a great leader. And I think you called it the tyranny of drift or, or something yeah, yeah, so yeah. what what is that okay so in, in my spark days i was fortunate enough to be led by simon Muta. so simon as you may be familiar with is the uh, ex-chief executive of, of spark uh, and of auckland airport and he i remember my first meeting with him one-on-one -on -one meeting with him simon's a, a big infrastructure guy and i didn't expect him to know anything about retail stores but i'd sent him a pack of information prior to the meeting, and uh, one of the pages was a, a measure of what they call add-ons, or, you know, uh, so basically you're measuring the, the add-on sales you make when you sell a mobile phone. Do you buy a charger or a case or whatever? Right? 
So within that pack, he had identified that there were discrepancies between our lowest performing store and our highest performing store of about 80%. So he asked the question, why? And I, uh, I was unable, unable to give him an answer. And he, he uh, I remember his, you know, his, his counsel back then was, Don't, I'm not asking you particularly because I'm interested in why understanding why. I'm more interested in understanding why you've ended up in that position rather than being deliberate around do you want an 80% or a 50% attachment rate or what's, what's good practice, right? What's best practice? So his, his lesson to me was, uh, and he used it regularly over our meetings, was let's be deliberate about the decisions we're making and bring the team along on those clear, decisive, deliberate decisions rather than drift into an outcome that you think is right, uh, only to find you're down, a, you, you know, too late, you're down a cul-de-sac. Yeah, I've, it's not his term. I've coined it the tyranny of drift. You know, and I see a lot of it in organisations in my clients where they've sort mm. of ended up in a position and they don't really know how they've got there, either good or bad. And they then we then sort of set about thinking deliberately around you know what sort of sales channel do you want? Do you want to be online? Do you want to be? Do you want to use a reseller? If we're going to use a reseller, which parts of the market do you want them to service? You know, and be quite deliberate about those choices rather than kind of right. drift into the, the outcomes and end up having to unwind them. So I, I call that the term mm. drift, and it's, I guess, the, the opposite of having a powerful, deliberate decisions that help you, you know, create profitable outcomes. So uh, mm. that makes sense. That's, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. So, look, coming to the end now, what's your ideal client and – you know how do they how do they get hold of you? So start with your ideal okay. client. What's your ideal client? I mean, who who's who is your ideal client? I mean, because there's a lot of people listen to this podcast, so yeah, they might need help. You know, yeah, okay. So I, I would I would determine my ideal client is someone who is mindful enough to know that they've got some blockages in their revenue, and the, and their sales organisation needs some work. And they probably, you know, they, they might be a, a founder or a CEO, and they've got their their sales organisation has drifted into a position, and that they're relatively uncomfortable. That might be getting them some, you know, reasonable outcomes, but they might be leaving money on the table. So, uh, and it could be across any industry, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, a particular size would be anything from you know smallish to mid-size. And the reason I mentioned that is. With a larger corporate, it's it's far harder to turn the tanker. You know, you're they're, they're, fast, they're right. far less likely to take the the changes and, and inv- or you know implement them quickly. Whereas you can see almost instant change within a small medium sized business, and I you know thoroughly enjoy that. I think as do the, the owners, right? Because right? they can see. And a good example of that is a business we worked on this year that uh, they had taken their eye off the ball. It's a twenty five million dollar organization taken their eye off the ball, the founder had sort of drifted away and we've gone in there and, and we've over doubled their sales within 10 months and have just recently wow. put in place a new sales director that actually you know from the old Bell Sound days, ironically, we've hired it twice. So that's a, that's a fantastic outcome. Oh, is that yeah. right? A fantastic oh. outcome. Oh, cool, uh, cool. We'll, we'll talk about that yeah, later. Yeah. So it sounds like you'd be happy to be hired even as, hey, come in and clean up the sales and put in the put in the systems and stuff like that yeah. as sort of like yeah. a a sales director for hire. Yeah. It sounds like you also can consult on ha- how to improve the channels and look at the channel mix and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it also sounds like 
you've got enough people that you've got your finger on the pulse of is you can say, hey, let me let me go into my network and see who's going to fit here. So yeah, that, that's, that's a, precisely right. That's a pretty yeah. good service. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I mean, that, yeah. that's. I mean, we. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty good service because I mean, you know, you're a one stop shop. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, like, hey. Yeah. Go and see. Go and see Nick, and we'll fix your sales channel, and we'll find you some people that aren't assholes, and uh, yeah. as well, I'll so, uh, yeah. you know come yeah. and have a beer with yeah. you. Although well, so we will <laughs> go. I mean, like anything, in order to understand the uh, the problem, you've got to identify the, the pain points, right? So, uh, so we yeah. will do the diagnostic uh, relatively quickly, right? Uh, you know, both fact based and intuitively, uh, to be able to then yeah. make a make a recommendation on how we can fix this. Uh, and un- okay. unlike the you know the big consulting firms, will actually do the heavy lifting and make help them make the changes. Right. You know, implement the sales structure, implement the yeah. commission models, and the new staff. Or okay. whatever. Yeah, well, that's a big yeah. difference. And we'll, yeah. we'll help run the yeah. team for a period of time, uh, including running the sales meetings or uh, you know going out on calls with whatever it might be, whatever it takes. That's a hell of a yeah, service. Whatever it takes to get to get the thing working, uh, and then uh, the ideal outcome is to. Is to backfill us with someone that will be there long term, or, or or train up the yeah. the individuals that are already there. Often, often sort of mentoring them to grow. Yeah. Wow, that's that's a real end to end service. That's that's great. How do people get in touch with you? I mean, how do they get in touch with the Sales Factory? What's the what's the 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 website and or LinkedIn? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a website that I've been working on over the summer because I'm I haven't had a chance to fix it over the last six years. It's fairly static, but it tells a you know. Pretty basic story. has got my contact details on, or LinkedIn's always a pretty good one. I'm on LinkedIn, or they can call you, of course, because you'll pop around and be with me at some stage. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just call me yeah. or call Nick, Nick Paul. That's P A U L mm. on LinkedIn, or the, is it salesfactory.com? Salesfactory.co.nz. The salesfactory.co.nz. So, and. You know, if you're a web designer, sounds like Nick could uh, <laughs> do with a hand over over summer. And hey, maybe what you can do is you can do a contra. Hey, come and fix my website. Oh, and I'll fix your sales channel, right? And then there's yeah, hey, it's perfect, right? That's the that's the perfect partnership. Yeah. Hey, yeah, Nick, absolutely. this has been awesome fun and uh, 26 years, and it was it was amazing to see you at that NZ Connectors. Like after that many times, like what? Yeah, absolutely. It's just crazy, was, and I'm yeah. sure we'll be doing some stuff together and. Helping clients get better because that's what we both believe in. We want to. We, we're here to serve. We're here to serve, right? So, yeah. Let's, thanks let's very much. You're welcome, and uh, happy Christmas to you and your family. And we'll uh, Same to you. reconnect in the new year. I hope you have a great time. Stay safe. Yeah. Yeah. Ciao for now. Go well. The Zone Way is a philosophy, a methodology, and a set of tools to create enlightened leaders and enlightened organisations. If you'd like to know more, you can get in touch with us on www.thezone.co. Until next time, ciao for now.